The theme song for the sequel cast is written and performed by Mark with a C. The sequel cast is also a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. You can listen to the sequel cast streaming on the Stitcher app at stitcher.com. Get more episodes of the sequel cast from sequelcast.com. Enjoy the show. I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. The credits roll, there's always more to tell Especially when the video sounds are doing really well From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6 This is Sequel Cast And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end This is Sequel Cast And your hosts have asked that I inform you Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a podcast that looks at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm Matt. With me is my host, Thrasher. Hello, listeners. Now the question is, Mr. Anderson, are you going to pick the red podcast or the blue podcast? That's mixed metaphors. That doesn't quite work. Um... So, um, yeah, our website is SequelCast.com. Go there for check out past episodes. And as you might have guessed from our tease, we are covering The Matrix. And we're going to start this episode with just going to look at the first film. In the next few weeks, we'll look at the other films in the series with uh, Matrix, Matrix Reloaded, a spe- an episode on Animatrix, the direct-to-video kind of spin-off thing, and then uh, Matrix Revolutions. So, yeah, the original Matrix, uh, which we're talking about this episode came out in 99. Oh, man, oh, man. That was an amazing summer. Wasn't it? Uh, directed by the Wachowskis, uh, who at the time were Wachowski brothers. Now they're just referred to as the Wachowskis because one of the Wachowskis um, is transgendered. Um, so, cinematography by Bill Pope, who we've featured his stuff on... No, okay, I take that back. That's not true at all. Pre-show research in action. Cha-ching. Uh, this came out from uh, Warner Brothers in 99. And according to Box Office Mojo, uh, off a budget of $63 million, made $463 million worldwide. So so huge, huge smash. And uh, it's worth noting, this came out in uh, end of March, which was pretty unusual for this kind of a big-budget film at the time. And... I think was a far more inventive uh, science fiction film than the other big behemoth that came out that year, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. I am going to agree. So where were you when you first uh, saw The Matrix? I guess before you tell me that, um, did you see any commercials? What did you know about The Matrix before you went to see it for the first time? Well, this is, this is what's interesting. I knew about The Matrix about a year, possibly a little bit more, uh, than when it uh, before it came out, there was a movie review, uh, not a movie. There was a movie uh, website that kind of tracked rumors for films that were in production. I want to say it was called like Corona or something like that. I don't think it exists anymore. But Matrix was one of the more interesting upcoming projects that it, that rumors were being gathered about on that website. And what actually got me interested was that. One of the top rumors was that this movie was actually going to be the Shadowrun movie. Huh? Yeah, the, there there was a, a there was a rumor going around that this that this was based on a piece of short fiction that apparently one of the the the, the rumor got really really detailed. I, I, I guess it, by this point it become an urban legend, but the claim was one of the Wachowskis had actually written a piece of short fiction that appeared in one of the Shadowrun source books and that they had somehow retained the rights to the story, were turning it into a movie, but then to avoid a legal complication with FASA, had to take out all the references to anything that was specific to Shadowrun. Now, none of that turned out to be true whatsoever, but that's what brought this project to my attention. Right. I remember watching the Super Bowl, and Matrix had a Super Bowl commercial, and they basically played bits from the scene, the battle on the rooftop, and it showed off the bullet time effect. And I saw, and it said, you know, starring Keanu Reeves, and I just started giggling. I thought, (laughs) this is ridiculous. Really? In an action film? Oh, a karate picture with Keanu Reeves? That'll be a hit. And it turns out it was. Um. 
Well, I I've really got to applaud this movie's advertising because. Like, they, they didn't give away the movie. I mean, th- you just would see some odd clips that didn't quite make sense but were intriguing, and then we're left with, what is The Matrix? And I, damn sure. it, I wanted to know. Right, I think that that's a great point. Yeah, what is The Matrix was central to their advertising campaign. I saw this on uh, opening weekend in the theater, 99, so I would have been a junior in, uh, in high school at the time. And I, I was just um, highly impressed, just just really blown away. I saw this in the theater, I think, three times. Well, this this was the perfect action-adventure sci-fi movie. Yeah, and it, it didn't hurt for me that around the same time I got into watching some, some anime, because uh, the Sci-Fi Channel had their anime block uh, on the weekend uh, programming. And although I've never seen the um, Ghost in the Shell the uh, the OVA anime that I guess the Matrix is inspired from in, in some ways, from what I understand. Uh, I'm I'm not well. The, the Matrix draws inspiration from a number of st- of sources. I, I'm not sure. going to claim that it's primarily inspired by that Ghost in the Shell film, although you can definitely see echoes of it in the final film. Right. I mean, one of the the stories I heard when the Wachowskis were pitching this is they showed a clip from the Ghost in the Shell anime, the original one, uh, to Joel Silver, the producer, and said, we want to make this basically both real people with this kind of action. Hmm. So yeah, I think also adding to the mystery is um, the, the writers and directors, the Wachowskis, didn't really do much in the way of press. They were like silent, except for, I think on one of the DVDs, there's maybe one minute of them talking about The Matrix. And they've certainly written some some essays and that sort of thing about it. Well, one thing I've got to wonder with you know the the ramp up for, to this film is it a rare example of marketing getting things exactly right and you know the the people behind the movie just staying just mysterious enough to keep the audience intrigued, or is this a movie that the studio had absolutely no faith in? <laughs> I mean, they sunk money into it, but on the other hand, it didn't cost as much as something like um, The Phantom Menace, right? Oh, no. And and you're having sort of, frankly, uh, you could call them B or C-level actors in the leads, right? Keanu Reeves was was a big name, but he wasn't considered the level of a Tom Cruise or a Brad Pitt or something. So, right, I think by making it more mysterious, they wanted people to to have a conversation about the film, which... A lot of people did. Um, in fact, on one of the later DVD releases, and it's also on the Blu-ray, they did something hilarious for all three Matrix films, where um, among the variety of uh, audio commentary tracks you can listen to, one is by a group of film critics who hated the films, especially the sequels, and one is by a group of philosophy professors Very cool. who loved all the films. So... <laughs> You get sort of a, ni- a nice contrast listening to those commentaries. I kind of wish more uh, commentaries would be a bit more clever in that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, with The Matrix, where to begin? Uh, wa- watching this over again for the sequel cast, it really struck me. This movie has a lot of exposition. Well, it's it's also just such a slow, slow burn. Right. I mean, you do have a little bit of action in the beginning with uh, with Trinity, but yeah, it takes its time to get to the Matrix, just like Dorothy took her time to get to Oz. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the the uh, the opening is is nice because it's a nice action packed opening, and you and you and you do really get invested in. Oh, who is this woman? I want to learn more about her. You, you won't learn any, m- much about her until much later, but it also kind of cleverly sets up some things that are going to come up later in the movie, like the reality bending martial arts and the importance of access points. As far as far as we're concerned, when she gets to the telephone, she's dead. Right, you don't really know what's happening. Not to mention, like all the crazy wire foo jumping you hadn't really seen in an American film since Big Trouble, uh, Big in, Trouble Little in Little China, which I think you watched earlier today. Actually, yes, I was watching that earlier today, <laughs> but for a completely unrelated reason. But you know, Big Trouble in Little China was a cult film that was not like a huge hit uh, at the time. Well, it wasn't a huge hit in theaters, but it was a huge hit on uh, video and cable. Right, right. So, uh, but I mean, you know, mainstream audiences really hadn't seen that much of that kind of action, and the Matrix 
just gives it full force. Which actually, I've got to ask, Matt, um, how many martial arts films had you seen? Hello? Hey, you still recording? Still recording. Okay, great. So let's keep on going. Can you hear me okay? I don't, all of a sudden, it, it, the connection just dropped for me. Hmm. Well, Matt, actually, I'm, I'm actually curious because I've, I've long been a fan of, of kung fu movies, chop sockies, all these different levels of Asian martial arts. Oh, yes, right. Um, how, at the time, so I was actually pretty literate in that kind of thing by the time I saw The Matrix. But what about you? Had you been exposed to much of that? Uh, that's a great question, Thrasher. Um, well, thank so, you. in you're welcome. Uh, in high school, Go on. I had, you know, begin studying film film history uh, a bit because I had the Cinemania '95 CD-ROM that basically had eBooks of like uh, Ebert reviews. One was a Pauline Kael book of her reviews. Had video clips, trivia, all sort of great stuff to start getting into studying that. And I had watched uh, Bruce Lee's uh, film Enter the Dragon. So I knew that. I also knew some uh, Jackie Chan films because he was in the kind of mid-90s. He was kind of blowing up. So I saw things like Rumble in the Bronx. Um, Gee, I don't know. What's uh, Operation Condor? um, uh, A few of the police story movies. Oh, yeah. So a little bit of Bruce Lee, a lot of Jackie Chan. And uh, that's about it as far as, as Chop Saki. I mean, my dad would make fun of those kind of films with the karate sound effects, but we never really watched a, I never really watched a whole lot of those growing up. So I had an inkling. I liked martial arts as a kid. I, even, well, in high school even. I did judo for a year and a half, and I did like a, a form of taekwondo when I was younger, and I liked Ninja Turtles. Now, in, in both of those classes, I imagine that your participation in those classes, classes ended when somehow you hit the instructors in the shin with a golf club. Uh, that was only when I did, when I did golfing. Well, actually, Although, to get the full story, why don't you listen to our classic sequel cast episode, uh, sequel cast, I believe it's episode five on oh, Caddyshack. Caddyshack 2. Caddyshack 2, yeah, that, that's a pretty good story. Uh, that's a good pull there, Thrasher. No problem. Yeah, no, when I took my judo class, though, I even though I was a high school student, they were putting me against full-grown men and women because it was sort of a, a mixture, and um, I almost had my arm broken in one class. Wow. And But that's why you learn to tap out if they're being too rough. So I took advantage of that, and I did. Um, but yeah, back, back to the Matrix. So I, I had some appreciation of martial arts, and I think even, even all these years later... Um, the special effects we can we can talk about later. Oh, I mean, I think they, they they still hold up fairly well considering the age of the film. But the martial arts, it's uh, well choreographed. It's choreographed by a famous um, fight choreographer whose name I'm not sure of. I'm trying to look that up right now. <laughs> um, it was. Was it Wu Ping, who also is the choreographer on the Jet Li film Fist of a Legend, cool. among others? He did quite a lot of um, choreography for well, Asian cinema. What I, when I, when Wu Ping? That's his full name. Well, it's it's cool, like the amount of detail he put into it. Because I, I found out later, uh, and this was I think uh, during, during interviews for the second Matrix movie that he actually gave each character their own distinct martial arts style. So Trinity is using a variation of the Crane style, and like everybody's style is in his mind supposed to be symbolic of the character. Yes, and in fact, uh, one of the documentaries on the on the DVD and Blu-ray go to that effect and show that show you know that the knowledge the main actors had of martial arts I, I think was quite limited and so they even had to start like a full few weeks of their training just learning how to do stretches correctly mm. and a part of the reason they explain why Keanu Reeves when he fights his neck is so, neck is so stiff is um during the in the middle while they're doing training Keanu Reeves rode his motorcycle got into an accident and had to wear a neck brace while during the training well you know what's what's funny is even though you know that that's just for practicality's sake because of his recovering from a neck injury, it only makes his character look more intense in the fight. It does, yeah, because he's 
physically Keanu Reeves isn't that intense. I mean, he's he's like tall and he's in shape, but he's not uh, uh, ripped like a, a Schwarzenegger or a Van Damme or, or something. Stallone, even. Although, could you imagine this movie with Schwarzenegger as Neo and Van Damme as Morpheus? No, but but speaking of that sort of stuff, you know who they really wanted to get in the lead at first, and well, he turned them down. Uh, who? Will Smith. Huh. In the lead from the Matrix. I think that would have been a different movie, but I don't think that would have been a bad choice. Right. I think Will Smith probably kicked himself for turning that down, and uh, as the part, yeah, he only got Men in Black. Well, that was before, but yeah, no, that was a big franchise in itself as well. And we've talked about Men in Black. Check out those episodes of the sequel cast at sequelcast.com. Uh, and the person they originally were considering for um, Morpheus was either Gary Oldman or Samuel L. Jackson. Huh. Samuel L. Jackson, I think, would have been a pretty cool uh, Morpheus. He, he, he would have brought an, a very different intensity to that role. I think so, but Lawrence Fishburne is intense. He's an intimidating figure. I think the fight choreography, not only is it well done, it's well shot. It's not done with a million edits a second. Which so is you can, another thing i got to say yeah. in favor of this movie. You right. can see all the fights. Yeah, and part of the reason is because the Wachowskis were so much into Asian cinema, and that's how they would do it in um, Asian martial arts films. So yeah, Carrie Ann Moss. I mean, she wasn't really well known at the at the time, uh, but she became well known because of the Matrix. And also, Joey Pants, Joe Pantliano, <laughs> is a, is in the film. No, I have to say he's he's pretty obvious as a, as a traitor. He has a goatee. Yeah, he does. He he is kind of sunglasses and by by default, like you know, you he's kind of you get the vibe that he's the weasel character. I can't believe we haven't even mentioned Hugo Weaving, who plays Agent Smith. Oh yeah, this was this was before he was well known for playing elves, right? But he did voice one of the. I think he voiced a dog in the movie Babe. Um, so there's that for him. But yeah, no, it's uh, and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, he was in that too. Well, and and like one thing I I love about his his agent character is that like the way the way he speaks. It's just slightly unnatural. So when, when you know you get the reveal that he and his fellow agents are actually intelligent computer programs, like you can totally buy that. That he does act like a computer program trying to interact with a human being. Sure. I mean, I think it, it's hard to. I mean, now maybe some of our younger listeners might not know. Say like, well, I care about the Matrix. It's an old movie, but have they at seen the it? Time, well, I don't know. But, I mean, at the time, I would say for a certain generation of people, Matrix was their Star Wars. Yeah, I, I got to agree with you. This was that kind of film. Right. And it just put so many 90s things, like, together. You had, you know, the movie Hackers came out a few years before. You had the internet on the rise. You the, had The uh, Net with Sandra Bullock. <laughs> oh, God. I saw that in theater, too. <laughs> and uh, Dennis Miller, lest we forget. And not to mention that, but you also had things like MMOs were starting to pick up, things like uh, EverQuest or Ultima Online, yep. right? So the idea of virtual worlds was not um, foreign to people. What Lawnmower Man was another film uh, at the time. Virtuosity, right? Yeah. So virtual reality was a theme in a lot of other movies. At the time, The Matrix just tended to do it better than any of the other ones. Well, the vir- virtual reality had taken the place in science fiction films of the 90s that radiation used to have in science fiction films in the 50s and 60s. It was the, right, it I was mean, the thing that, they, that the writers and the audience probably didn't understand that would be used to justify all the crazy science fiction stuff. Lest you forget, from uh, 95 to 96, Nintendo even had their Virtual Boy system. Oh, yeah. that It wasn't really portable because you had to plug it into a wall, I think. Or maybe it had batteries, but well, it was it, huge. It rested it sat on your wear head. It. it rested on a tripod. <laughs> sure. And, I mean, even now, you know, with Oculus Rift and, and Sony has their... I, I don't recall. Is that called Morpheus? I don't even know. Sony has some VR thing they're doing for PlayStation 4. So, I mean, they, they've been trying to get that stuff working for a while. But all that... The combination of, like, virtual reality and, and 3D and internet and leather jackets and all this sort of... And, like, sort of from the goth culture and all this stuff... 
kind of melded together in Matrix was a perfect expression of all these things in pop culture. Well, I mean, this is also just like the perfect cinematic expression of cyberpunk. It's it's all dark jackets right. and mirror shades. Yeah, dark jackets, mirror shades. Uh, and using math as a superpower. Using math as a superpower, some, some armchair armchair level philosophizing. The east-west collision of cultures. Oh, sure, right. I mean, you know, lest we forget, not too long after The Matrix, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out. You, you kids need to sit down and read yourself some William Gibson, man. William Gibson was great and Lethal Weapon. He had great chemistry with Danny <laughs> Glover. Well, okay, I can't do that as the mashup this week. I'll have to think of a new one. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, so we, we've talked a bit about the effect the, the Matrix has had on... Uh, pop culture at the time and some of the the acting. But I think part of the reason why the story in this first film in particular is so effective, and I had someone at work a few months ago mention this to me, just that we were talking about movies and he brought up, man, you know, that, that first Matrix was so much more relatable than the other ones because it's, a you know, the um, character of Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, in his day job, he worked, he was uh, worked in an office and he hated his job. Yeah, he was just this computer programming schlub. Right, he he worked in a, he literally worked in a cubicle. He hated his job, and then he finds out that actually he's he has far more potential than um, than he ever realized, and becomes uh, starts the path to becoming a, a savior, which is a very and that he starts as you know kind of a cool hacker guy going to the dance club selling drugs by well, night. Well, I'm going to go so far as to say he's not cool. Well. Even when he's in, even when he's in the club, he still Stiff. kind of projects this kind of aura of of a semi cowed uh, cubicle drone. But that he starts as an ordinary guy, yeah. and and you're the guy you're going on this adventure with, makes it a lot easier to to get into than say the sequels, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks. Yeah, well, this is one of the few movies that takes the hero's journey and, and does it well. This isn't a lazy rehash of the hero's journey. This is an actual skillful, artful adaptation of the hero's journey. Exactly, and um, as you mentioned, it takes its time. So we get to know the characters a bit before all sorts of crazy shit happens. I mean, if you love training montages, this film is full of training sequences. Oh, yeah, and the movie is not also not afraid to include little bits of weirdness. What's a bit of weirdness that you had in mind? Well, like, you know, like, well, for instance, in, like, the, the, the opening fight scene with Trinity, just, like, time speeding up and slowing down as she fights, or... Or Neo like getting a mystery cell phone with a mystery voice on it that gives him instructions that the person on the other end of the other end of the cell phone couldn't possibly be able to give him in real time. Or you know my absolute favorite when Neo is brought in by the by the agents who are sort of interrogating him to see, to get him to confess to being this hacker, and they take away his mouth. That's a terrifying sequence. Uh, yeah, I mean it's nightmare fuel. I mean, he's screaming, but his mouth is covered with skin, but it's still kind of translucent. I mean, that and, like, the bug they put into him, it's all, like, Cronenbergian body horror. Certainly, right, right. I mean, something else in the film that I think is quite interesting is the music. Not only... Did you have a, a soundtrack with mainly, you know, like techno music that's in the film? Great this, soundtrack, by the way. Sure. But also that the score by Don Davis, it's a combination of electronic and symphonic. And to your point about weird scenes, the music just sounds weird and discordant and off. Well, and I mean, it works. It sounds like a bunch of robots trying to have a choir. The effect really works. Yeah. I mean, it gives the film an extra bit of tone and a bit of flavor that it would not have had. Otherwise, and it's highly, highly effective. Uh, looking at the special effects in this film, I think for the most part they they hold up pretty good, and especially I like the the Sentinels. And as you find out what the Matrix is, there's just so many sequences that that work well, where it's all white in the background, and then you see like all the guns go by when they pick out the weaponry. 
Well, I think one of the things, they, they do make a very good use of light in this movie. I think that's one of the reasons why, like, when the robots show up, why the robot effects still work, is that a lot of what the robots are is kind of shaded in darkness. You're not seeing a pornographic level of detail on the robots because there's shadows cast on them. Sure, and also it, it helps that when you have the, the sentinels, those squid-like robots at the end, you only have him fighting they're being chased by what like two or three of them it's not like they're being chased by 10,000 of them and even then that small number of sentinels still registers as a threat right no they do they do a great job of you know showing that it's clearly outclassed the the ship that they're piloting and they they're trying to get a get around get past it and you have the the contrast of um the sentinel attacking the the Nebuchadnezzar the ship with you know, Neo in the Matrix fighting Agent Smith, and now that he's all trained up, he's able to uh, really kick the shit out of Agent Smith. But that's that is a pretty rewarding moment. Oh yes. Do you think the character of uh, Trinity has a lot to do? She with the film? she has a decent amount to do. Um, the the thing the only thing that I don't like about Trinity, and actually. If this one thing was removed, I would probably enjoy her character so much more. Is it, at one point in the movie they introduce this character of uh, of the Oracle, and there's this thing that comes out with with Trinity and and you know everybody. I guess we'll, we'll maybe talk more in detail about the plot later for the seven people who who haven't seen this movie, but and you know they're looking for the one, this literal chosen one who's supposed to deliver uh, the people from the Matrix, and. There's there's this whole thing at the end where she was told that she'd because cons- everybody has consulted the oracle and she was told that when she consulted the oracle when the one was found she would she would fall in love with him and I really can't stand that because then that that kind of removes it removes a bit of her agency and humanity and it kind of it makes the love less important because well now it has to happen right it was it in is, a prophecy it is it is. Your fate, which fate becomes a big deal, fate versus free will, is a huge deal in the the sequels, um, which we'll get to in the coming weeks. Uh, yeah, and I think in the beginning, Trinity is, is quite strong. I mean, you see her as the lead in the first action scene, and she's tough, and she knows more than he does. And, I mean, what what could have been a big mentor sort of relationship between Trinity and Neo, instead kind of become you know turns into a romance sort of near the end of this film and then more and more in the sequels and it kind of it softens the character a bit which is too bad yeah well, well morpheus really does become the mentor i i guess they they, pro- yes. they probably should have they probably should have put trinity really much more in a warrior role and kept her there or you could have had trinity and morpheus as the same character i don't i don't know i think i still think much. they work better as two different characters I mean, quite a lot of this plot is is set up. You're explaining what the Matrix is. Neo is being trained. He knows Kung Fu. Whoa. The infamous, the infamous and yeah. often quoted line, I know Kung Fu. Right. I mean, it is shocking there was no tie-in video game to this film at the time it was released. Well, which is another thing that makes me think, did the studio have absolutely no confidence in it? Because the sequels, oh, they had video games. Uh, yeah, we'll get to that in the other episodes, but right. And with this, I just think, yeah, they thought it'd be, they thought the movie would be okay. I don't think they think it would be a phenomenon, and if it launched a franchise, uh, great. But even in the late 90s, they weren't trying to make everything a trilogy. That hadn't quite started yet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't franchise mad. And th- that's one of the great things about The Matrix, is the way it ends, you could continue the story, but you don't have to. Yeah, it's it's wonderfully, it's a lot, in a lot, that way it's a lot like uh, a Star Wars Episode Four, A New yes. Hope, where it's, it, it can stand on its own as a movie. If, if there were, had been no other movies made, it would still stand on its own as a wonderful movie. So, um, wrapping up our discussion here, The Matrix, what is... Your favorite scene in the film? Oh gosh! Yeah, actually, I think strangely enough, of, of there's lots of great things uh, in this movie. But one of the things I like is that 
in in the in addition to the in, having little bits of weirdness in the matrix because it's a virtual environment there's also like little things that we all experience are sort of explained to be byproducts of imperfections in the matrix so as a result what, i think my overall favorite scene is when neo and the rest of the crew of the nebuchadnezzar that ion craft ship are all are all eating breakfast which is just this kind of like pre-mixed cornflake goo and they're just yeah. kind of just and the, and the and the sort of uh scarecrow looking hacker is you know talking about how you know they don't really know what this food they're eating is supposed to taste like but he thinks that it tastes like this cereal he used to eat in the matrix called tasty wheat but since robots who the robots who program the matrix don't understand human senses they couldn't get flavors right which is why uh every food <laughs> that isn't that good tastes like chicken yeah no that, that's a good bit i mean my favorite scene of the film has to do with food as well but it's a different scene <laughs> and it's when um cypher played by joe pantoliano is having dinner with uh agent smith oh and he's selling them out he's selling them out and he's eating steak and just the relish on uh cypher's face as he's tearing into that steak well, almost having a, a, a sexual experience well, an orgasmic experience because he's not the steak pre-mushed cereal which i think is so great <laughs> Sure, but it's a nice moment of humor, and this film does have humor in it. It's not all serious philosophizing. Well, that's something I like about Cypher's betrayal, is that it's not... he He's not betraying them because in the third act they need to have a traitor show up. He has very good motivations for betraying the, the Nebuchadnezzar crew. You know, he, he likes the Matrix. He lives better in the Matrix than he does in the real post-apocalyptic Earth, so he wants back in. I liked the character Cipher so much. I was disappointed they didn't find some way to bring him back in the sequels. Yeah, that would have been that would have been nice. And he certainly could have because of the Matrix, right? They could have generated another one because you get a zillion Agent Smiths running around. So they could have thrown a bone to Cipher. I think that would have been fun. But okay, so out of five stars, I give the Matrix. Um, I'll give it five out of five. I usually don't do that, but I think it's uh, not. Not only was it a great film at the time, it's a great film now. It's a good mix of action and story and a nearly perfect example of a world building. I'm going to give it five as well. This hits all my buttons just right. I mean, it's 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 got enough action to be a great action movie, but it's got enough philosophy. It's got just enough philosophy in it that it's not a dumb action movie. Again, the world building is great. Uh, I, I guess, you know, th- this... Th- this was the best, you know, depiction of cyberpunk on screen as well that uh, that we had seen since. Uh, excuse me, that we had seen since Blade Runner. Sure, I mean those big um, those big wide shots of the Sentinels and humans are in the pods and everything. I mean, with the lightning in the background, it's just uh, some really great stuff there. Oh no, that's actually something I did want to bring up. So the whole notion is, you know, humans are being kept in this virtual environment, the Matrix, because the robots are using the neurochemical energy of of the human nervous system as a power source. That's right. Do, does that work for you? It's it's a bit convenient. I mean, I, I do think if we're talking about the whole series here for a moment, mm-hmm. that the Sentinels are not that interesting at all. Um, so, but it's tough. You have a villain that, that frankly, they're one of the bad guys in a sense, you know, that frankly doesn't speak. They're, they're machines. It's these sort of squid-like things that fly around and you have to give some sort of a reason. But, um, you also could have done it where they just captured the humans as, uh, revenge for them being made as like hopeless little robots in the first thoughtless little slave robots in the first place i I don't like i don't like that because i I don't like the idea because that's the thing i like about the first matrix is that the machines are machines the whole reason they have humans imprisoned in the matrix is because it is a practical solution to the energy crisis that the robots are facing because the humans blocked out the sun in in a nuclear war and the human and the robots were dependent on solar power at that point Hmm. No, that being like, it seems just like a cold, rational solution to that problem, and that's why the robots did it. Although, if I could put two spins on it, 
Go on. Part of me would lo- loves the I- this never comes up in the movies, but part of me loves the idea that the robots sh- would have been manufactured with safety features, and so the robots can't drive the human race to extinction because that would violate their safety protocols. So this is the compromise the robots came up with. So humans wouldn't be a threat to robots, but the robots don't have to destroy all humans. But apparently in an earlier draft of the script, and this, I think, would work so much better, in an earlier draft of the Matrix script, uh, the robots weren't using humans as a power source. The, uh, when humans were jacked into the Matrix, the robots were using the parts of their brains the Matrix didn't need to, as, sort of proce- as parallel processors for the big AIs that controlled all the robots. I like that explanation better, too. That's, yeah... That makes more sense. So, so in in my head, that's what I like to imagine is really happening. The power they're getting is not electrical power; it's processing power. I mean, that's more of like a nerdy representation than what they they do in the film. Well, it's yeah. kind of like you know, okay, uh, I guess spoilers. Like if you if you've read uh, Fall of Hyperion by Dan Simmons, that's kind of a big reveal in that book. Is that all the people using virtual reality have been you know the AIs have been using their have using their brains as processors. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, let's do pitch a sequel. So let's pretend none of the Matrix sequels ever happened. Now, Some people is, claim they never did. No, this is fun because e- e- when this movie came out, me and my friends would like pitch our own sequels to this and talk about what else could they do? What if there's more? So I- I've been preparing for this for years. Well, then why don't you begin? Okay. Well, this is this this was uh, my my thing uh, is that I always thought the best way to do to do. Uh, uh, a sequel to The Matrix would actually be to do a trilogy. I will only explain part two of the trilogy. I'll explain part three for uh, maybe next week's episode. Or maybe now as a whole thing. But my in my ideal version of The Matrix trilogy, part two would actually be a prequel about the original one and the first escape from The Matrix. And mm, so that's, that's using the theory from the, the second film. No, no. This is all or... stuff that's in the first film. In the first in the first film, they set up that there was a one before, right? Who, okay. who freed the yep. first humans from the Matrix, who started the the whole Rebel City, you know, deep beneath the Earth. And so this would actually be his story, but it would actually start near the end of his story. So it would be sort of nonstop, badass, amazing human rebellion action. And at the end, you know, there would be the big escape, the big exodus from the Matrix, and and the the rebellion would be founded. Uh, and then part, then the part three would actually be a time jump. It would be ten, twenty years after the events of the Matrix, and it would be Neo as the one leading this fanatical. Uh, fanatical population of free humans and a final push against the machines. Sort of like Dune with um, Paul Atreides leading the Fremen against the in a in a way, yes. Empire. Although uh, although the way I wanted it to actually end was it was actually going to end with a uh, they were they weren't just going to wipe the machine they weren't just going to wipe the machines out, but it was actually going to kind of end in sort of a hopeful ending where there can be possibly reconciliation between the human between the machines and their creators. Oh, I'm all brought about by Neo as the one who kind of exists in both worlds simultaneously. Hmm. That'd be trippy. Oh um, yeah, that's how I'd do for, it. Yeah. For my pitch a sequel, I think I would do a prequel as well, but my idea would be called uh The Matrix Agent Smith Chronicles. And it would be about, you know, out of all the different um, AI that the robots make in the Matrix, why do they decide to have, you know, their best fighter be a guy that looks like a, a CIA agent in, in sunglasses? Like, what was... It would start, I guess, with that um, AI being created in the Matrix, and he'd be like a a businessman and somehow in the AI it would get it would be really skilled at at combat and it would just be sort of like a glitch for some reason this guy's like fighting level is like level 99 and everyone else is like a 10 <laughs> and he uses it to his advantage and even though the um the AI wants to keep this guy with the huge fighting abilities 
they kind of want him want him tampered down so he doesn't stand out. He he makes a name for himself and presents and manages to escape the matrix himself and presents himself to the head AI unit and uh convinces them to use him as their number one, you know, go to guy to get stuff done. Hmm. So it'd be called the Matrix Agent Smith Chronicles. Do you think the word chronicle has any meaning now that it's been, like, added to any title that needs more gravitas? I was just about to say that, yeah, it adds gravitas. That's the only reason why I have chronicle in there. Because hmm. you can't call it just the Matrix colon Agent Smith. Or could you? Well, you could call like, Matrix Agents or something like that. Or, yeah, or you Matrix could... Origins Agent Smith. yeah. You could call it A. Smith. A. Smith. Then the sequel to that can be B. Smith. That's about his brother, Blacksmith. And then, of course, Ironic, Silversmith. Er, Coppersmith. Smithfield Ham. His, uh. His rapper, Black Sheep Sister, Wordsmith. You know, I like the idea of a rapper named Wordsmith. We, we should make that our persona if that isn't already taken. Not bad. Wordsmith, the nerdcore rapper. I bet it's already out there. I guess we'll just have to see. <laughs> well, if it's not, Googling. we call it. Yep. All right. So let's uh, let's go in for some sequel news. I think there's been quite a bit recently. There has been a lot. Uh, and interestingly enough, the apparently North Korea has denounced Seth Rogen <laughs> and James Franco's movie, The Interview, which is a comedy about uh, a reporter who goes to interview uh, a uh, a dictator based on Kim Jong-un. Well, apparently Kim Jong-un and his government don't cotton to those kinds of shenanigans. <laughs> but yet Kim Jong-un said he'll be first in line to see the movie when it comes out. Well, I so. bet he has the same love of cinema as his father. Uh, he does. Um, and and maybe he'll kidnap Seth Rogen and force him to make a movie about a metal monster that eats iron and becomes giant. Could be. We'll have to see. Um, you know, I, I think there's a great poster for this film that looks like a propaganda poster. Oh, yes. That, that's I've really well that done. Uh, the bit of news that jumped out to me is, uh, so Predator, that's a series that, you know, really never took off the way they wanted it to, like, say, Terminator or Alien did. Um, and Shane Black... It, who actually had a small um, acting part in the original Predator film, is going to be directing and, and co-writing a new Predator movie that was first reported to be a reboot and now it's revealed to be a sequel of sorts. And the other person helping on the script is Fred Decker of RoboCop 3 and Monster Squad fame. RoboCop 3, eh? Yep. Will they defeat the Predator by plugging a computer into its uh, ankle and then typing an act like a puppy? Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. You know, Predator has never really got its fair due, I think. Although I think it's cool. I mean, uh, one of the many spinoff comics was Batman versus Predator. Oh, yes. And when you think about it, those characters are pretty similar. They have all these cool gadgets. They have their code of honor. They... So, I don't know. I mean, do we really need another Predator movie? I did not see that one called Predators with Adrian uh, Brody a few years ago. Did you? No. I mean, Predator Predator, and Predator 2 are both, I think, very good movies in their own right. Very, Both very enjoyable in their own ways. But, I don't know, I think the, leg the, the legacy of Predator have really kind of has been torn down by the Aliens versus Predator movies. Right. And, you know, maybe that that's the thing they're trying to do, because I think Prometheus, which is technically a, an alien movie, um, was was pretty good. I quite like that. So maybe if they're going to sort of do kind of like a more serious kind of revisiting um, of, of that creature to kind of clean the slate. Maybe so. Even though even though they're not calling it a reboot, really. Um, it could be good. I mean, yeah, like well, Alien versus Predator well, uh, actually, Requiem. Has any movie ever described itself as a reboot? Yes, I think. Uh, the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. That was one of the first movies where I think they described it as a reboot. Hmm. Um, I mean, this came up on Twitter recently. I was trying to engage in conversation with uh, somebody that ignored me. But, uh, Take that! 
But what he said was, you know, he was saying, is there, he was arguing that there's a, a difference, I think, between reboot and remake, and people don't know what the words mean. But I, I don't think there's that much uh, of a difference b- between the two. I think remake might mean it's a more faithful uh, retelling than a, than a reboot. But, I mean, both situations are you're trying to take a s- similar characters similar characters in storylines and try and tell it over again for a new audience. Do you think there's a difference between reboot and remake? Honestly, like I, semantics? I, think, I think reboot, remake, and reimagining are all horrible words for the same thing. Right. Well, they do it in comics all the time. Yeah, but it's not good in the comics either. What about isn't in is it in uh, one of the Spider-Man books now they have Spider-Man is not Peter Parker? That that has happened on and off I think since the in a pretty regular basis since the 90s. Who can forget the Clone Saga? Oh yes. Which in a strange way part of me would like to see the Clone Saga done as a film. Dear god. <laughs> Maybe. Well I mean I figure uh, well like I I agree with John Waters. If you're going to remake things, remake the bad things so that you can possibly make something better. Like, how awesome would it be if you took the central concept of the Clone Saga but turned it into a good movie? So that means we're going to see a remake of Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones? Well, only if it's part of the Clone Saga. I see what you did there. That's a Clone War, not a Clone Saga. Spider-Man swings in to fight the uh, the Separatist. But little does he know, Count Dooku has a surprise up his sleeve. But that, Eight of them, and they're all tentacles. Well, that's okay, because Spider-Man <laughs> can catch his force lightning in a web and throw it back at him. Ah, uh, that's, that's a mashup nobody wanted to hear. Um, <laughs> so, so, I, so I think a new Predator movie could have potential, and I think the, these people behind it are an inspired choice. These people were with the experience in the industry... Um, I wasn't a huge fan of the the Iron Man film. Shane Black did Iron Man three, but it was better than Iron Man two for what it's worth. Um, so yeah, well we'll see. Uh, Shane Black did a really great movie called Kiss Kiss Bane Bane that starred Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. It was kind of a quirky uh, crime movie. So I think anything else sequel news for you? No, those are the ones that really well. I guess do we want? We might as well since we've been talking about it regularly uh, since since our, our special episode. But uh, new Star Wars news: uh, Harrison <laughs> yeah, Ford sure. apparently broke his leg on the new Millennium Falcon set, and as a result, it's it's causing some intense uh, shock waves around their filming schedule. Allegedly, the film might be delayed until the the following summer. It's supposed to come out uh, Christmas 2015, but it might be delayed till like May 2016. Which you know, I I don't I can be patient. I don't mind it getting delayed, especially if they can use that extra time to to refine the film. Although at the same time, I also fantasize that they'll just add a scene where uh, where Han Solo gets his leg chopped off with the lightsaber, goes no, and then it's just in a wheelchair for the rest of the movie. I mean, to be honest, I don't think they're going to have Harrison Ford do a lot of his own stunts anyway. Can't they just use, like, digital face replacement? I mean, think of the classic story about the making of uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, where Harrison Ford really wrenched his back, and most of the film was filmed with his stunt double. And then Harrison Ford had to do close-ups at the, for the last, like, month of shooting. Yeah, but that's not the best way to make a movie. Well, No. It's not. I would. Uh, I would say let the man let the you know shoot what you can without him, and then let the man. Re- but let the man recover, and then you know get get back onto filming his scenes. I guess one last bit of sequel news that's just popped up, and I think it's interesting. Uh, there's so there's a new Mad Max movie coming out that's been delayed forever. Stars Tom Hardy, who played Bane and Batman and um, The Dark Knight Rises, as Mad Max, and Charlize Theron is in this. Have you seen this picture? No, no, I haven't. Okay, I will send this. To, this makes great internet radio, kids. Uh, we're gonna do a live commentary of uh, this picture. So scroll down. This is the cover of Entertainment Weekly. 
but I think you know George Miller, who directed all the other films, he he co-directed the third one actually. Um, They have the look down, like, and uh, apparently, practically the whole film is going to be a a chase scene. You know the 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 filter they have over this picture. It's almost like they're trying to make it look like part of the new Fallout game. Yes, it does. That sort of washed out look. The machine stopped turning, and civilization fell. As cool as Tom Hardy looks, I really love the look of Charlize Theron in that picture. Sort of a uh, a Ripley and Alien Three vibe. But yeah, I'm excited. I'm wondering if they're going to have it rated R, like the first two Mad Max movies, rated PG-13. I certainly hope they stick with R. Me too. Do you think they're going to have it where it's supposed to be the same guy, or is it another guy who takes on the title of Mad Max? Well, is he ever referred to as Mad Max? Because uh, I, I only that, remember the him... guy's name is like Max Rockatasky or whatever. Because I only, I only remember him being referred to as Max. I don't think anybody calls him Mad Max. I don't know. Good question. All right. Well, that's some, that's some sequel news. <laughs> so, um, oh, we did we did get someone on Twitter uh, just trying to get people to chime in on the Matrix, and uh, one of our listeners, Rowan Michael Morby, yeah. said uh, the Matrix is the definition of a series suffering from sequelitis. So, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, apparently the Wachowskis' intentions all along was to make a trilogy, even though they knew they weren't guaranteed one. It depended on how the first one did. And um, what they did with the trilogy is is certainly their own thing. I mean, they went they made a lot of ballsy choices. I don't think they're all successful. Well, but, uh, yes. But we'll talk about them in the coming weeks. I mean, I, I don't. The Matrix sequels have a lot more meat to them than say uh, Transformers: Revenge of the Fallen. Yes and no. I have, but I have I have a specific comment I'm going to make uh, uh, next week. Okay, table that for next week. So, uh, I believe you have a question for me. Yes. And that question is, where is Smiler's money? But no, in all seriousness, that question is, what you're watching? Smiler was my favorite of the Ghostbusters. The way he'd eat the food and, and <laughs> get, get smiles everywhere was... Oh, wait, that's Slimer. Um, I have been watching... You know, I have not seen X-Men Days of Future Past yet. I've been trying... Uh, my wife and I have been trying to see it for the past month or so, so and we just haven't had the time but what i did on hbo though uh the movie the wolverine just became available so i watched that yesterday oh what do you think had you seen it Th- this is the one where he goes to japan right yeah yes i have seen it you did okay i think you might have even talked about it on an older episode of the show i believe i did i i i quite liked it i think it has perhaps some of the best action i've seen so far in cool. the x-men series i, I like that it was sort of a more contained story and that, yes, it gets kind of stupid with fight scenes near the end, but even then they're somewhat restrained in that it's like one-on-one or two-on-one fights. It's not like you have a zillion people fighting him. Um, I, I'm not terribly familiar with, with the comic, but I have been to Japan, and I recognize some of the, the places he went to in the film. Such as the Mars Room. Not not the Mars Room, uh, but I, I did recognize when he's in the city... Running around behind him is a big building that says Sega on it, which is Sega's, you know, like 10-story arcade in Akihabara, the electric district in Tokyo. Um, so I recognize that. That was sort of fun. So, yeah, I I thought the Wolverine is leagues ahead of um, X-Men Origins Wolverines. Which that, that one was kind of a mess. And ha- why haven't we done the X-Men movies on sequel cast? There's a lot of those. Because there's a lot of them, and there's different series and sub-series and prequels right. and continuity snarls, and they keep making them. That's true. They never really stop, do they? I mean, think... We have no stopping point. We would have to sort of arbitrarily say, okay, this the first three movies, that's it. You know? Well, cause, So that first film came out in 2000. Yep. So in, in 14 years... They've come out with X-Men, X2, X-Men United, X-Men 3, The Last Stand, X-Men Origins Wolverine, X-Men First Class, The Wolverine, X-Men Days of Future Past. I believe that's it, right? That's seven. 
seven films in 14 years. And they've and already got, one I X-Men think, Apocalypse film. in the works. That's right, yeah. The next one's going to be Apocalypse. So And supposedly and that, a third Wolverine spinoff. That is also true, correct. So you're going to have nine films. So <laughs> X-Men is going to get a, uh, what do you call nine of something? Nine neurology? Yeah, they're gonna X Men's gonna have a nine neurology before Star Wars does. Crazy and, man. and half the time. Yeah, that is pretty pretty nuts. So um Cool, but no, I think I think the Wolverine was, was pretty good. And watching it, it's clear you don't have to watch it, I think, for X Men Days of Future Past, from what I've heard. But I'm looking forward to see that. I hope to actually catch that in the theater this weekend, so we'll find out. Um I guess next time I'm on a few episodes from now, if I've caught up with that movie, finally. Uh, what have you been watching? Well, actually, uh, the, the most recent thing I've seen uh, was Big Trouble in Little China. When is the last time you saw that? The last time I saw it was a, was a, f- a few years ago. I picked up I picked up uh, the DVD the when it fu- when it came out, and I, I would usually I would watch it with the commentary with director uh, John Carpenter and star Kurt Russell every year because that is one of the best audio commentaries that has ever been recorded. Uh, but I had I had a lot of housework to do today, and. And oh hey, it's available on a certain streaming service that isn't giving me a kickback. So I decided to play that in the background, and it wasn't quite as in the background as I had originally intended. That is a good movie. I find that I I find that I see something new every time I watch it. Kurt Russell is great in that, isn't he? Oh, he's amazing. I mean, everybody's great in that movie. And that he's doing like a, a John Wayne impersonation, and that his character, like one of the on, the only white guy in the film is like the real clumsy one well that's that's the thing is that it has the structure very intentionally it has the structure of a western but kurt russell is in the role of the sidekick yes and i think perhaps that's maybe why it didn't do well at the time i don't know it's such it's such a great movie definitely you know i have not seen it since i was in high school and i didn't really like it when i was in high school (laughs) Well, it, it is. I, I will say, from my own experience in middle school and high school, it is a movie that is loved, that was loved by a lot of people of that age who didn't understand it. And, I, and there's nothing wrong with love. I mean, it's a great, it's a great movie. It should have your affection uh, as a fan. But you know, being not being even more literate with the, with uh, the movies that inspired it now than when I, I was first introduced to it, it's just such a rich film. Do you mean they don't understand it because they don't realize it's like a satire? I mean that sort of thing. Well, or? it's well, it's not really a satire. It's more of a tribute. I mean the whole the whole movie is is mm. all the elements in it. It's kind of meant to be a tribute to a lot of Sue Hark's work. He did Chinese ghost stories, Zoo Warriors of the Magic Mountain, I Love Maria, things like that. And so, like a lot of the more over the top elements of this movie are taken from his films. I see. And another another fantastic John Carpenter score. Oh yes, they're all uh, pretty pretty damn fantastic, if I do say so myself. Well, it's about time for our uh, Paul Goebel Memorial mashup. Why don't you explain to our listeners what that is? Well, what I do is I take two uh, impressions twist them all up together into one twisted impression, and Matt and our guests have to figure out what that combined impression is. So are you, you got ready? one ready? Yes. All right. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming to my show. I think I'll do my opening number now. It's Liza with a Z, not Lisa with an S, because Lisa with an S goes snooze. It's Z instead of S, Liza instead of Lee. It's as simple as can be. It's Liza. I'll do it again. Oh, no, I can't do it again. The recording that has all my lyrics on it is broken down. Now everyone's going to find out that I've been lip-syncing this whole time. My musical career will be ruined. Both of our musical careers will be ruined. Mama, Mama, can you help me? Mama? Hmm. So, I I know part of it Mm. is uh, Millie Vanilli. (laughs) Yep. 
But you mentioned Elizabeth Taylor, and that makes me think that she was friends with Michael Jackson. <laughs> and you did it kind of like like high pitched, and that reminded me a bit of, of Michael Jackson because I don't recall what Millie Vanilli's I, actual speaking I, voice was. I never mentioned Elizabeth Taylor. You did not. No. I, I, so I, I was mishearing something greatly. I said um, Liza. Ah, Liza Minnelli. Yes. Uh, Millie. Li- Liza Minnelli. Li- Liza. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, that's Paul Goble would be proud. Oh, I bet he I... would. I- I'm sure we'll get an angry phone call from him. This, this is what you guys are doing with my friend's bit. What kind of horse shit is this? <laughs> we should I... give a shout out. Is his Kickstarter still happening? Uh, his Beat the Geeks Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, I actually I think it wrapped, but I'm going to double check. Okay. Friend of the show, Paul Goebel, who is a TV geek on, on Beat the Geeks, um, had a. Uh, let's see. Uh no, no, it uh, it did not meet its funding goal. Man, that's too bad. Did not meet its funding goal. Well, Although I bet he, he'll. He did get a lot of. I mean, the the project's not dead, but the Kickstarter is. I see. Yeah, he's certainly been been talking it up a lot. That's that's too bad. But I think yeah, he'll he'll make it happen way or another. And it's not to bring back Beat the Geeks; it's to bring back a concept for a show he has called Uber Geek. Yes, which would be, you know, the the ultimate geek game show. Right. That is exactly right. Well, okay. So on the. Uh, Next time on SequelCast, we'll be talking about the second film in the Matrix series, The Matrix Reloaded. It came out a whopping four years after the original. It came out in 2003. And it uh, was very, very controversial. It came out summer of 2003. So I think this would be quite a meaty discussion because I have vivid memories of seeing this in the theater. Ah, the tales we will tell. Can you believe The Matrix Reloaded is over 10 years old? Well, yes, but only because that much time has passed. That's not what I was going for, but okay. But time is an illusion. Lunchtime, doubly so. As the great uh, Douglas Adams said. (laughs) Is that from the very first Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book? It's from the very first chapter, actually. (laughs) Is it a forward prefect quote? Yes, as it is. It's what he he explains that... uh, to the uh, owner of the uh, the Lion Pub. And is that line in both the uh, the movie I, and the miniseries? I, it's certainly in the miniseries. I think that line, it's one of those iconic lines that I think shows up in every adaptation. Fantastic. So we conclude this discussion of The Matrix by talking about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, all roads lead to... Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and the late, great Douglas Adams. Indeed. Um, if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, you can catch me every Tuesday night from 8 to 10 p.m. hosting a pub quiz for Geeks Who Drink in Wilsonville at the Ram. That's every Tuesday night, 8 to 10 p.m. Also, follow me on Twitter at SequelCast. And if you like the show, consider uh, donating. Go to SequelCast.com and click the Donate button. On the left there to uh, donate via PayPal. We greatly appreciate it because podcasting isn't free, unlike freedom. You know, I haven't brought this uh, uh, out in a while, but I'm going to dust this off. We just want to wet our beaks a little. You hear that? Thrasher says we want to wet our beaks. They're getting parched. If we don't get donations, the beaks are going to crack. Just, just you know, We just want to wet our beaks, just the tip. We might turn into just a yearly podcast. Who knows? No. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be a yearly artisanal boutique podcast. <laughs> Five years later, we're only halfway done covering the X-Men films. <laughs> doing one episode a year. <laughs> the donations still haven't come in. No, but seriously, you know, this show is... It's fun, but it's also a, a lot of work, and I, I lose money on it every year, and it'd be nice just to... We have, we've had people donate in the past, but if you... Enjoy the show. Just you know, dig deep in your hearts and your wallets, and consider throwing us a few bucks. And by clicking the donate button at sequelcast dot com, we greatly, greatly appreciate it. 
So, and uh, did you mention your Twitter handle? Uh, yes, you can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, and also, I will be at uh, Gen Con in Indianapolis. Uh, the best four days in gaming, I will be running lots of events. If you see a good event, it is probably one of mine. So just look for the events by Kettlefish Productions. When is that convention? That is in mid-August. So still plenty of time to get out there. Mid-August, mid-August, mid-August. Cool. As Abed said on Community, cool, 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 cool. All right. So uh, for the sequel cast, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. I can't stand your human stink. Well, I learned Kung Fu. You can take the blue pill or the red pill. I really love this steak. I think it tastes like tasty wheat. Tasty wheat is the tastiest wheat you'll ever taste. There is no spoon. Did they come out with Matrix-branded spoons? Not that I'm aware of, but <laughs> let's get on that. Let's get the sequel cast merchandising department developing a set of Matrix spoons. And other Matrix, Matrix spoons. And I bet if you look on Etsy, someone's probably been selling Matrix knockoff spoons. <laughs> the sequel cast is a hipster goblin production. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 